Hello, good morning. Uh, Today we'll be reading Romans 12, verses 1 and 2. I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. This is the word of the Lord. All right, we're continuing our series, uh, Words to Live By, looking at 10 verses that every Christian should know. Last week, Ryan preached, and we talked about Colossians 3, 1 through 2, so let's just kind of rehearse that together. If then you have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above, where Christ is seated, at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things that are above, not on things that are on the earth. Ten verses every Christian should know. These are foundational verses that ground us in truth, encourage us, spur us on, help us in times of temptation, in times of despair. They are verses that will shape us, change the way we live, and so memorizing them, learning them by heart is an aid to us uh, for days ahead. Uh, Now this morning, Romans chapter 12, 1 through 2, there was a guy named Hero, and I'm going to, I don't know how to say his last name, Anode maybe, Hero Anode. Uh, He was a Japanese intelligence military officer uh, who was in the Philippines during World War II. And he had two orders from his commanding officer uh, to complete while he was in the jungle of the Philippines during World War II. And that was to commit guerrilla warfare against their enemies and to not get captured or die. Don't get captured, don't die. Commit guerrilla warfare, don't die. Well, American troops came in and cut him off from the rest of his uh, battalion. And so uh, because the troop, American troops came in, he got cut off. He was by himself um, and could not get back to his men. Uh, and then World War II ended. But he was by himself, and he didn't know. He didn't know. And so he stayed in the jungle, continuing to kind of do this guerrilla warfare thing, you know, make problems for the locals. And he lived in that Philippine jungle for the next 29 years, surviving and uh, committing guerrilla warfare. And he did not believe any attempt to persuade him that the war was actually over. Search parties came looking for him, calling for him, yelling his name, and he hid from them. Planes flew over and dumped out baskets of little leaflets, of pamphlets, telling him that the war was over. But when he got those pamphlets, he thought it was American propaganda trying to lure him out of the jungle so that they could capture him. After 29 years, his aging commanding officer hiked out into the jungle, called his name, called him out of the jungle, told him the news that the war was over, and commanded him to go home. You see, he was stuck in a lie. He was stuck in a world, in a story, in a belief that the war was still raging on and he couldn't get out of that. 
And no matter what, try to persuade him otherwise, he wouldn't hear it, he wouldn't believe it. And it wasn't until the only man he trusted came all the way from Japan to the shores of the Philippines out into the jungle and commanded him home that he finally believed that the war was over. And then he entered in a new story, a post-war story, where he engaged the real truth in his life, took a different turn, and he did some great things. We are not so different from this guy. You see, we are all stuck in a world, in a story, in a truth, in a value system, indoctrinated by the world. But when someone came to us, when the only one who we could ever trust left heaven, came to earth to give us the truth, it changed everything about our lives. When Jesus entered history, it set us on a new course where everything has changed about our lives. This Japanese man was set free from the war waging only in his mind, not in reality. Set free from the jungle and went home to his family and friends, started a whole new life. We too are set free from the values and the beliefs and the propaganda of this world. And once we are free, we have a whole new life. A life devoted to the one who has set us free. That is the thrust of Romans 12, 1 and 2. That the only logical response to being saved by Jesus is a life given in obedience and worship to him. Romans 12, 1 through 2. I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God. The first thing that you must see here is the foundation of for all of our obedience to Jesus. The foundation for the life that we live and focus on him. Notice the appeal. Paul is pleading with his audience. I appeal to you, I plead with you to obey Jesus. But notice the motivation. I appeal to you therefore. Whenever you see the word therefore, it is referring back to the argument previously made. So anytime you see the word therefore and you're studying your Bible, you ask what is it there for? Right? And it, it, this, the, the next statement that he's going to make is the logical next step based on what he's previously said. He said, because of what everything I just said, therefore this. And so what is it that he's just said? And in case you forgot, he kind of reiterates it. He says, I appeal to you, therefore, by the mercies of God. So the first thing you must know about our obedience or our life lived for Jesus is that the appeal to obedience is rooted in the mercy of God. The appeal to obedience is rooted in the mercy of God. And that's really, really important. The message of the Bible is not obey God, do the right things, follow the religious rituals, be moral, give money, and if you do those things, mercy will be yours. That is not the message of the Bible. In fact, that's actually the message of every other religion in the world. Every other religion in the world says, do these things, do these religious activities, and you will earn paradise. Do these things, and you will earn nirvana. Do these things, and you will earn heaven. But Jesus has a message different than everything else in the world. He says, my mercy comes to you by sheer grace. My mercy comes to you by grace alone. You do nothing to earn it. You do nothing to merit it, to deserve it. It is a free gift I give you just because I want to give it to you. And he gives it not only 
when we are unworthy of such a gift, but when we've actively rebelled against him, yet still he chooses to give it. This is unheard of in the religious world, in the secular world, and any and everywhere, that especially a deity would give free grace requiring nothing of us, but just by his love would pardon and rescue and lavish mercy on us. You see, for the first 11 chapters of Romans, all Paul has done is broken down the gospel into its component parts. He has broken down the good news of God's redeeming love on display in Christ, on his cross, and his resurrection, how it all works and how it's for you. He's shown us for 11 chapters God's love on display for us. And we see that not only in the content of what Paul has said, we see the gospel on display, but even in the grammar itself, we see this. You see, in Greek, you can tell what, uh, 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 what mood a verb is in, all right? So people who hate grammar like me, just hang on for a second. But the m- words have moods, right? Kind of like you, you know, maybe some of you are moody right now, but they have moods. And you can tell there's one of three moods, uh, indicative, subjunctive, or imperative. All right, and so in chapters 1 through 11, they are all, the ind- all the verbs are indicative. And the indicative mood means that it is a fact. It is a truth claim. That's it. Okay? It is something that is true. And it is only after you get to chapter 12 that the verbs changed to imperatives, to commands. Do this. Not just believe this, not just know this, not just this is a fact, but do this. That's important because it shows us that the first command is in response to 11 chapters of true things of the mercies of God. The reason I'm commanding you to do this is not to get what I'm talking about in chapters 1 through 11, but because chapters 1 through 11 and his mercy and his love are true, now go and do this. And that completely flips the script. Uh, mercy has been granted to us already, and so we're responding out of that. You see, if there were a certain number of things that God required of us, like think in Islam, there's five pillars of Islam. You've got to do these five things to get Allah to love you and to go to paradise. Well, if that was true of, of God, that he required so many things of us to do before he would let us into heaven, well, once we did those things, Once we checked all the things off the list and we were done, we would be off the hook. God could require nothing else from us because he required these things. We've done those things. We've met our requirements. We're done. We've did the work. Now we get the reward. But what would happen if God required nothing of us? saved us anyway, blessed us, rescued us, gave us eternal life at the infinite cost to himself, what then would be the response to such a gift? What would be an appropriate response to that? And is there any limit to what we could give, should give, or God might ask of us after receiving such a gift? And that's Paul's point. Because of the mercy you have received from God, freely given to you, You should present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Because of the mercy of God, your whole life should be given to Jesus. 
That's the second point I want you to say, that worship is more than singing. Worship is a whole life lived for God. Worship is so much more than singing. It is a whole life lived for God. You know, sometimes the language we use in church culture can be misleading. Uh, and can actually lead us to bad theology, bad thinking, wrong thinking, and be unhelpful. When we talk about church service, sometimes we'll say, yeah, we're going to worship, right? Uh, and and it, particularly we're thinking of the singing part of church as the worship portion of church. Or the fact that we call the, the, the guy that leads the music or the gal that leads the music, we, we call him, he's our worship pastor, right, or our worship leader, Right? Uh, because singing, in our minds, is what worship is. Now, singing is good, it is important, it is commanded in the Scriptures. Singing is important because it teaches us. It is a form of worship, to be sure. It is praise, but it is not exclusively or even primarily worship. Paul here defines worship for us. He says, that worship is presenting your bodies as a living sacrifice. And that your body or your life is to be marked by holiness and acceptability to God. That there is nothing, there's nothing in this verse about singing. You see, worship is a whole life lived for God in accordance to God's standards. You do not get to decide how to worship God or what worshiping God looks like. You don't get to decide what it means to worship God. I can't tell you how many times I've heard people say, well, you know what, Me, I just worship God in my own way. You know, I don't go to church, I just worship God in my own way. You don't get to do that. Like, you don't get to do that. You don't get to say, well, you know what, I, I, I worship God on the golf course. You know, that's where we connect and, and you know, I just I drive that ball and, man, that's just me, that's me and his time together. No, it ain't. No, it ain't. You know, you know, I mean, I just read poetry, you know, when I, I read poetry, it's so moving, and, you know, that's, that's just kind of God speaking to me. No, it ain't. It's not true. Don't fool yourself. You do not get to worship God how you want. God decides how you are to worship him within his standards. So what does God want? Well, he tells us. He doesn't leave us hanging. He tells us. He wants a living sacrifice. He wants, in response to his mercy, he wants us to be a living sacrifice. Now that word sacrifice invokes certain images, right? Particularly in the first century, it invokes images of lambs being slaughtered on altars. It invokes images of dead animals burning uh, on, on, on funeral pyres, right? It, it invokes images of blood running down the streets. But God has made the final sacrifice for our sin. Jesus has bled and died for us. So he's not talking about that. He's not saying a, a, a normal sacrifice. You see, no longer does blood need to be spilt. No, instead, the way we worship God is not through sacrifices of blood, but through the sacrifice of a life lived for Jesus. It's a living sacrifice, not a dying sacrifice, a living one. It is a life that honors God, obeys God, follows God, knows his word, follows his commands, holds his values, beholds his beauty, does what he says is good. And if your worship is to be living, if it's to be living, if it is to be your whole life, that means it doesn't just happen on Sundays when we quote-unquote go to worship. It happens rather every moment 
of every day or should or could or ought to happen every moment of every day. And if that's true, that our worship of Jesus should not just be when we come, quote-unquote, to worship, but it should be Monday, Sunday through Saturday, every moment from when we wake up to when we go to sleep. If it should be all of it, then there's something we've got to change in our thinking to get there. And we have to change this idea in our minds that there are spiritual things and there are secular things. We, so people have called this the, the sacred-secular distinction. And we've got to say that distinction doesn't exist. That there are not spiritual things in our lives and secular things in our lives. And those are two different categories, two different facets. The idea that some things are spiritual and some things uh, God just doesn't care about because they're quote-unquote secular is an idea that is foreign to the Bible. It is foreign to the Bible. From the very beginning, in Genesis chapter 2, we have a command from God. The first command from God that is true then, true now, and will be true in the new heavens and new earth is to cultivate, to take dominion of the whole world. You live in a garden, cultivate it and make it beautiful. Work the ground, work the land, build, shape, imagine, dream, create. I think this is a helpful phrase. Um... When we think, think about that, like, there's not a sacred, secular distinction. All truth is God's truth. It's a, a, a simple statement, but I think it's really helpful and actually can really help us down the road. Uh, all truth is God's truth. So, so let, me, let me apply this. Let me ask you a question. Is math secular or sacred? Is math something God doesn't care about, or is it actually spiritual? What about grammar? What about your marriage? What about your hobbies? What about your job, your work, your career? What about your finances? All of these things are not secular things. That is like, that is just the world, and we just have to go do math because, you know, we've got to do it for work. No, uh, God cares. Two plus two equaling four is not the world's truth, it's God's truth. I think work is such a great example for us to kind of think through this. Do not go to work thinking, this is just my job. This is what I do to make a living. Or, or even, you know, sometimes we get a little spiritual and say, oh, you know what, my job, I just use it to make a living, but it's also a platform for sharing the gospel. Both of those things are true. Jobs are good to make money. Jobs are great to be a platform to share the gospel. Both of those things are true, but it is also the way in which you are building, cultivating, taking dominion of the world. How you, are, how you are building culture, shaping the creation by cultivating it into what is true, good, and beautiful. That is why work matters. That's why work became before the fall, and work will exist after we get into a resurrected body and a new heaven and a new earth. It is why you should see your work not only as Christian, but as worship. That as you work unto the Lord, stewarding and cultivating the creation, making things beautiful, making things good, doing true, good, hard work, it is worship unto the Lord because you're fulfilling his command. Before the Protestant Reformation, so previous, you know, before 500 years ago, um, the work was, uh, we use the word vocation, right, vocation. That word was only used to describe church work because the vocation was something you did for God. 
And so you had to be a, a priest or a monk or work for the church in somehow or some way. And if you did that, it, you, you know, you had a vocation. But after the Protestant Reformation, guys like Martin Luther and John Calvin and, and Theodore Beza, these guys started to talk about vocation. They said, you know what? Working for God isn't just when you work for the church. But everyone who works is actually doing a vocation because all work is for God. All work is for God. All work is cultivating and stewarding the earth and the world and the culture that God has given us. One of my favorite quotes is from a guy named Abraham Kuyper. And he said, there is not a square inch in the whole domain of the human existence over which Jesus does not cry out, mine. There is not a square inch in the world. There, and that's not just land. That's every facet, every, uh, everything. Every corporation, everything. There's not a square inch that Jesus doesn't say, that belongs to me. Remember what Paul said in 1 Corinthians 10.31, whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do it to the glory of God? How do you eat for the glory of God? How do you drink to the glory of God? Well, I'll tell you, when you sit down over, you know, I just, I barbecued a, 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 a brisket the other day. Man, we got that thing out. I've been sitting in the cooler for four hours, still piping hot. You slice into it, and it's just like juicy goodness. When you sit down at the table, if you think, man, I did this, this was all me, then the, then the enjoyment terminates on itself. That's all you get. But if you sit down and you realize, man, God provided this. God gave me the, the gifts, the ability, the tools, the cow, the money, everything to bring this to my table. He is the giver of this good gift. Then it actually spirals up to greater enjoyment. And I'm glorifying God while I'm enjoying brisket. And it's worship. Whatever you do, whether you eat or drink, do it to all the glory of God. Whether it's a meal with good friends or family, giving thanks to the, giving praise to the giver of good gifts. Man, as you sit around a campfire with good friends telling stories in a way that honors and glorifies God. And is in gratitude to him, living out his standards and his commands, enjoying his gifts and his worship. God gets all of us and wants all of us. He doesn't just want your Sunday. He doesn't just want the one hour out of your week. He wants your whole life lived for him at home. Your whole life at the dinner table, on vacation, at the ball field, on the lake, in the bedroom. Yes, in the bedroom, on the floor with your kids, at your job, and everywhere else. God wants it. And it should be given to worship as worship to him. We need all of life to be worshipped. But that's hard for us to think about because we have been conditioned to think that our singing is worship. And so we, we need to retrain ourselves, we need to rethink and retrain ourselves to see ordinary moments, regular, quote-unquote, secular things are actually things God cares about, and we should give our lives even to the ordinary things of God. One of the things that is helpful in changing our thinking about this is understanding that we need to live out a Christian worldview. You may have heard that phrase before, a Christian worldview. That we should see the world in light of God's truth. You know, everyone sees the world through a lens, right? Like when I take my glasses off, y'all just look like a bunch of blobs. Like I don't even look like people to me. But when I put my glasses on, I see through these lenses and I see more clearly. 
If you put sunglasses on, it's looking through a lens and everything is darker. It's shaded more than it naturally is. Well, we need to look at and see the world through the lens of biblical Christianity. We need to see everything, every sphere of our lives and every sphere of the world through the lens of biblical Christianity. And so when we're at work, when we're doing our hobbies, when we're thinking about money, when we're thinking about our time, our vacation, everything else, it is through the lens of the story of God, through the truth of God, and we live and make decisions and show gratitude and see things completely different in the light of this God-centered lens. The last part of this sentence, I think, brings this idea home. When he writes that being a living sacrifice is our spiritual worship. Being a living sacrifice is spiritual worship. So living for God in God's ways is worship. And, 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 and uh, we have determined, I, I think there's, there's more to this phrase, that it's spiritual worship. I don't think the word spiritual here is the best translation for us to understand it. The word, the word here is the word lagokin, lagokin, and it is the same basic word that we find in John 1.1. You remember John 1.1, in the beginning was the word, in the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God. In the beginning was the logos, that's the word, logos, for the word word. So why is it that in John 1 we translate the word logos to word, but here we, we translate logokin, just kind of a different form of the word, to spiritual. Well, this seems completely disconnected. Well, well, it is. The translators are trying to help you understand a word that is dripping with Greek philosophy. This was a Greek philosophical word, like Plato loved this word, like Socrates loved this word, right? The logos was the embodiment of reason, the embodiment of understanding and reason and logic. It, it, it was, the logos was the thing in Greek philosophy that explained the universe, that brought reason and, and explanation and logic to the universe. It is where we derive our English word ideas of Ology, right? So think biology. What is ology? Ology is the study of everything that has to do with bios, life, right? Or whatever ology you're studying. It is all the things that have to do with that thing. And it's also where we get our word for logic. So hear this verse in light of understanding this word logos, logokin. I think it better says, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable acceptable to God, which is your logical worship. You see, the idea is, when you know the mercies of God, when you know the story of God, when you know what God has done for you in Christ, when you know his saving power, his redeeming love, his plan to rescue and make all things new. The only logical response to this great gift of grace is to give my whole life and service to the giver of this great gift. It is the only logical and reasoned response to the grace and the mercy given to us. How could you receive this mercy, this gift, and do anything other than live every moment in light of who he is and what he's done for you? How in the world could you ever try to live contrary to this God who has saved you and given you all these things and then live contrary to what he tells you? It is illogical to ignore, 
to not think about, to forget, to be ungrateful for, or to not realize the full extent for what Jesus has done. But the only logical response to the mercy of God is to live our whole lives in service to Jesus. It's the only logical response when you understand who he is, what he's done, what he's doing in the world. The only logical response is to say, man, I want to follow this dude to the ends of the earth. And whatever he says, I will do. Because anybody who would give his life for me, knowing who I am, is somebody worthy to be trusted with my life. And I'm going to follow him. And so we put on our biblical glasses. We put on our biblical glasses and see everything in light of his mercy, his story, his truth. That there's one creator, one redeemer. That history is headed toward a particular telos, a particular end, a particular goal. We don't, you know, sometimes it seems like the world's going crazy and out of, spinning out of control. It's not. God is driving the ship. And that, when we look at the world through those glasses, it changes how we respond to events that happen in the world. So how do we get there? How do we get to that place where we're able to live like that, live a whole life for Jesus and seeing everything through the lens of his truth so that we live in light of that? Two, the text gives us two things. We have to live defensively and offensively. Offensively and defensively. So first, we must defensively guard against being shaped by the values of the world. We must defensively guard against being shaped by the values of the world. The text says, do not be conformed to this world. Do not be shaped by, become like in the image of, do not be conformed into this world. If you are going to live every day as worship to God, you have to live within the bounds of what God says is good, right? Like you have to live within the parameters of what God says is right. If not, what you do, how you live, will not be pleasing to God, right? So you cannot take pagan religious practices and just change them and worship Jesus instead of Zeus, you can't say, well, instead of a little Zeus idol on my mantle, I'm going to put a little Jesus idol on my mantle. can't do that. You can't say, well, instead of temple prostitution for Zeus, I'll just have temple prostitution for Jesus. can't do that. That's not within the bounds of what God says is good, right, and holy. Right? We cannot allow the values and beliefs and practices of the world to pollute our minds or it will show up in our actions. You see, a polluted mind will lead to a polluted life. A polluted mind will lead to a polluted life. If you allow the values of the world to pollute your mind and your thinking, it will pollute the way you live. But what we do is we will baptize it, trick ourselves into thinking what we're doing is acceptable to God. When our minds get polluted by the values and the thinking of the world, we baptize it in spiritual language, and now we're living out, we, we think we're living for Jesus, but really we've baptized secularism, we've baptized worldly ideology, and thinking it's acceptable to God. This is exactly what, for example, the LGBTQ community has done, right? God is love, so how could God be against me loving the person I do? So they say, love is love. Right? Love is love. Polluted thinking leads to polluted life. We see this on clear display when young, unmarried Christian couples move in together. 
Because that's what the world does, right? That's what their friends are doing. We see this when mothers and fathers sacrifice their children on the altar of their career. Because that's what the world says is valuable, right? We see, go get more, go get more money, go get a raise, sacrifice your kids and time with them and raising them. That's less important than your job. We see this in our fights, in our ungodly behavior over political power, because the world says politics is ultimate power. And so we buy into that lie, forgetting we serve the God of ultimate power who is shaping the world the way he wants to. We see this even in the American dream, that we buy into the world's vision, that if we work hard enough, make a life for ourselves, we buy the right house, we'll have some kids, build up a big 401k, and one day retire on a beach somewhere and go collect seashells in luxury. Everyone in Ohio wants to move to Florida. I don't know what it is about here. I guess it's too cold. But we think, oh, man, the American dream, let's just do this, work hard, get money, build a 401k, one day retire on the beach. And we'll rest because our work is over. When, when we think that, we forget. We're exiles. And we are priests. And we have been sent by God into this world not to build small kingdoms for ourselves, but to appoint and to labor for his kingdom. To labor and to work and to say, go to this guy. Believe in Jesus. Our work is not done until we take our last breath. And we keep fighting and we keep working, serving Jesus. You might retire from a career, but we never retire from the mission of God. You see, I could go on and on with example after example where the values and the culture of the world sometimes creep into our biblical worldview and the lens by which we see the world. And it doesn't seem bad. Like Who doesn't want to retire on the beach? That sounds awesome. But it creeps into our thinking and it pollutes our thinking and therefore pollutes our lives. So our lives then don't get lived as a worship to God, but rather worship to self. So we got to play defense. We have to learn to recognize the values, the philosophy, and the culture of the world and defend our minds from letting those things creep in and take over. Because those things don't come like a tidal wave. They never come all at once slapping us in the face and we go, oh, God. Because if they did, we'd say, oh, no, I don't want that. That's bad. But rather it comes like a dripping faucet. Drip after slow drip after slow drip. And you don't notice it until you get your water bill next month and you go, oh, my gosh, what happened? And you just didn't realize that the faucet was dripping ever so slowly. Because little by little, when you are not watching, it adds up. There's a gradual slide. We have to beware of the little things. I'll, I'll, give, you, I'll give you one more example. We've got to beware the use of language. Because the use of language will slowly erode our thinking and our biblical worldview. The use of language seems so benign, so harmless, but actually slowly erodes us. So when the world says, no, let's use the word fetus instead of baby. Eventually you'll think that life in your womb isn't really human yet because it's a fetus. When you use the word gender instead of biological sex, it's interesting, the word gender uh, refers to language. If you've ever studied Spanish or Latin or, or the different romantic languages, you'll know that words have gender to them. Like in Latin, the word mensa is the word table, and it's feminine. It doesn't mean the table's a girl. 
It doesn't have biological sex. It just means the word is feminine in its language. And the thing is, in language, sometimes mensa can become masculine. The word can change from a feminine word to a masculine word. And so it's fluid. But when you start using gender in place of biological sex, all of a sudden sex now becomes just as malleable as gender. Language makes us change how we think. Instead of prostitution, we say sex work. Instead of adultery, we say non-monogamous. Truth matters. Words matter. And it's one way that if we don't defend against those ideas, they will pollute our thinking and then pollute our actions. And we will see the next generation and the next generation and the next generation will go, how the heck did y'all get there? Well, we left it because we did not hold the line. So if we are going to live whole lives for Jesus, we have to defend against worldly ideology and thinking so that we don't start living contrary to what would be pleasing and acceptable to God. And therefore, we're not worshiping, with our, worshiping him with our whole lives because we're outside of the bounds of what he says is good. Verse 2 continues. He says, but don't be, tra- don't be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind. We offensively work to be shaped by the values of Jesus. We offensively work to be shaped by the values of Jesus. It is not enough that you believe in God. It is not enough that you come to church on Sunday morning. That's the starting place. If all you do is come to church on Sunday, you will not take in enough Bible enough theology, enough renewed thinking to counteract the secular worldview that you are indated with, that you are ingesting every single day. You are being preached to. You are being taught and shepherded and led and being persuaded every day as you scroll through social media, as you turn on the TV, as you watch movies, as you listen to music, as you wa- listen to podcasts or the radios, as you read books, as you have conversations with friends. Nothing is neutral. Nothing is neutral. And if you are in taking tons and tons and tons of information, you are taking in thoughts and worldviews, and you are being led and shepherded and persuaded. And if you are not intellectually engaging and thinking critically, then you will become conformed into those things. You know, one response to this is to get it all out of your life, right? That's what the Amish do. Amish say, it's all bad. We're going to, no electricity, move out in the middle of nowhere. We won't engage any of it. But that's not what we're supposed to do as Christians. We engage. We renew our mind. We engage. We listen to podcasts. We watch movies. We watch TV shows. We scroll social media. But we just got to think about it. You cannot check your brain at the door and just receive. You must critically evaluate. You must know the scriptures, you got to know what is true so that you can compare these other things to it. Let me give you one example of, of how things shape you and you don't even realize it. Chick flicks. Or rom-coms. I'm not saying don't watch them. I'm saying think about them. Listen. Here's the plot of every rom-com or every chick flick. Here's the girl. She's sweet. She's pretty. Got every perfect. You know, she's great. And then you meet her husband. And he's a jerk. He mistreats her. He takes her for granted. He's checking out other women when she's not looking. He's a loser in every way. But then, enter guy number two. He's cute, sweet, charming, notices her, cares about her, appreciates her, values her. And what happens in your mind and your heart as you're watching that? You are rooting 
for her to divorce the loser and get with Prince Charming. You're rooting in your mind and your heart for her to leave the scumbag and get with that guy. Because why wouldn't you? Like, it, it just seems right. But what does that do to your soul? After movie, after movie, after movie, what does it do to your soul after you continually root for the affair? Rooting for the affair, rooting for the divorce. What does that do? Well, it certainly makes our thinking devalue marriage. It certainly makes us devalue marriage, and it certainly makes us more easily discontented with our own. You have to renew your mind. You have to read the scriptures. You have to, as you watch these things, as you intake things, compare and think about it. Don't just receive it. you got to compare it and think about it. Is this true? Is this good? Instead of rooting for the affair, rooting for the divorce, root for the scumbag to be better. Grow up. If you, this is a fascinating study. I was reading this week. Um, if you read your Bible, statistically speaking, if you read your Bible once a week, there is no noticeable impact on your life. No, no like, like tangible impact. If you read your Bible twice a week, no impact. If you read your Bible three times a week, no impact. But in, this, in the research, something crazy happened between reading three times a week and four times a week. If you read your Bible four times a week, the odds of you going out and getting drunk go down by 57%. The odds of you having sex outside of marriage go down 68%. The odds of you uh, viewing pornography go down 61%. The odds of you gambling go down 74%. The odds of you sharing your faith with others go up 228%. The odds of you discipling somebody goes up 231%. And the odds of you memorizing scripture goes up 407%. When you outweigh the appeals of the world's way of thinking... When you outweigh that with what is true, good, and beautiful from the scriptures and taking that into your life, it means you go into every day thinking about God, thinking about how he's changed your life, thinking about his mercy, and you stop doing dumb stuff and it starts motivates you to live for Jesus. Our world is growing more and more out of steps with, with our values every day. And there is no putting Pandora back in her box. We are always going to become, uh, we are always becoming something, right? We're going to become one thing or the other. We're either going to become more like the world and we're going to blend Christianity and the world together and make this syncretistic new thing. Or we're going to reject worldly philosophy and keep to a biblical, traditional uh, uh, worldview and see the world as it really is as God has revealed it. So what happens when we do all this? When we defend against the world's attempts to persuade us and we actually study and know the truth so that we know how to offensively think? Well, the verse ends that by testing you may discern what the will of God is, what is good, acceptable, and perfect. When our minds are renewed, we will be able to live confidently for Jesus. Y'all know that feeling you get when you're driving and you, and you kind of know where you're going? You don't have your GPS on. You kind of know where you're going, and, and like, but but you're like have to be super focused because you're like, is that my turn? And every time you go past it, you're like, was I supposed to turn there, right? Or when you do turn, you don't recognize the scenery. You're like, was this the right? Am I going the right way? And you don't. And you're if you're a dude, you don't ask anybody for help, right? You're just like confidently going in the wrong direction and not sure. You're gonna figure it out. But what happens when you turn your GPS on? Man, you sit back. You don't even think about where you are. You don't even think about where you're going. You just wait for that sweet little voice to come on and say, turn left in one mile. And, and you're like, okay, sure. Right? And you turn left. And you're not even worried about it. You're just like, yes, ma'am, I got it. I'm following you. When you actually are able 
to test all of the information against what you know to be the truth, what to be good, what is beautiful by the scriptures, because you know the truth and you're confident in it, then following Jesus becomes like following a GPS. You are not worried about anything because you know the one navigating you. You know the truth. And so no matter what the people in the back seat are yelling at you, hey, you missed your turn. Hey, I know a shortcut. Turn up here. We'll get there faster. You don't listen to them because you know he's got you. And he's leading you to where you should be going. And you're not trusting those voices. You just trust Jesus and you follow him. And when you only trust his voice, you begin to live a whole life in service and gratitude and in worship to Jesus. And you live it out confidently. The only logical response to the gift of mercy that Jesus has given to us is our whole lives in worship and service to him. Because anyone who gave so much for us to, that would take our lives. Here's the thing. When you give your life to Jesus, it says it's a sacrifice. But it's really just another gift. Because anybody who would give his whole life for us is going to lead you to places of prosperity and of blessing and joy and peace. And so really, when we give our life to him, our lives just get even richer, even sweeter, even better. Sometimes through great difficulty and great trials and great tribulations, but still somehow they're joyful and better. It's amazing that Jesus would give his whole life for us. And then when we give our whole lives to him, he gives our lives back to us even richer, even sweeter. Another gift of his mercy. Let's pray together. Father, we're thankful that you loved us so much that you would send your son to die for us. That you loved us so much that even when we were rebels against you, that you came after us to save us. God, would you help us to be a people who do not just see Sunday mornings or singing as worship, but we see all of our life. By getting up in the morning, by caring for our kids, by enjoying the, the, the gifts you've given us, enjoying food and drink, and enjoying the, the hobbies that you allow us to have and do, by cultivating gardens, by cultivating our homes, by painting the walls, by building things, by working, by all that we do is in service and honor and, 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 and gratitude to you. And our whole lives would be lives of worship, living sacrifices. God, help us to, to see the world through this lens and to live out the Christian worldview in every sphere of our life. Because it's the only logical thing once you understand your mercy, God. It's the only thing that makes sense is to give our whole lives to you. So help us do it. If you're here this morning and you don't know Jesus, you're, maybe you're like that guy from the beginning, a hero lost in the jungle and you've, been heard, you've heard the truth again and again and again, and you just think it's propaganda, you just think it's false, you think it's wrong, you think it's manipulative, you think it's whatever. I, ch I challenge you, come and taste him and see that he's good. Just try him, because once you taste him, you won't put him back in the box. If you don't know Jesus this morning, I invite you as we sing to come up here and talk with me. I'd love to share him with you. If you're here this morning and you're like, Brent, just, I want you to pray for me. I could give my whole life to Jesus and stop holding back areas from him. I'd love to pray with you about that. If you need to pray about anything, I'd love to do that. God, give us the strength to respond the way we need. In Christ's name we pray, all people said. Let's stand together.